0: Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 167, Reviving Dia el-Medina. Today, official business is underway in the hills west of Luxor. The village of the Tomb Builders, generally known as Deir el-Medina, is about to return to the limelight. In the reign of Horemheb, the village got a new start on life, and a golden age was about to begin. This episode comes to you on behalf of Bethany, Grace and Misty, who joined the Patreon as hereditary nobles. Their support is most generous, and will fund great developments in the village. Misty, Bethany, Grace, thank you kindly. May your households endure for a thousand years, and your descendants honour your memory. To everyone listening, Thank you for joining me. Come, let us travel to the west bank of the Nile, and revisit an old haunt. The year was 1325 BCE, approximately. Regnal year 7, in the reign of hor M heb It was a nondescript year in terms of great monuments or political affairs. There were no military campaigns, no major celebrations that we hear about, no enormous monuments to commemorate and commission. And yet, Regnal Year 7 is one of the most significant in this king's reign. It is in this year that Deir el-Medina returns to the record. It's been a while since we visited Deir el-Medina, aka the Set Ma'at, or Place of Truth. In the early 18th dynasty, the village emerged under the rulers Amunhotep I and Tutmos I, who defined this community as we know it. The village of Deir el-Medina, or the Place of Truth, was a thriving home for the royal tomb builders. Artisans like painters, sculptors, masons, and builders came to this village to live, Their families came with them, and the area became a bustling centre for tomb-building activity. At least, we think that's what happened. The early history of this village is quite vague. We know about a few individuals, like the architect Ka, whose magnificent tomb was discovered 100% intact. I did a mini-episode about Ka and his wife Merit back in 2018, just after episode 103. Beyond Ka, we also know a few minor individuals, some scribes and people like that. And we have a basic idea of the size of this village. Archaeologists have excavated Deir el-Medina extensively, and in some excavations they went below the current level, the houses that you see today, and they uncovered traces of the earlier phases. There is not much left of those earliest layers, but we can say that In Dynasty 18, the village was about half the size of the town you see today. There were approximately 40 families, with maybe 200 people total for the entire village. That's an estimate. It's not a lot, but it gives a sense of a tiny, compact community. These were a select group chosen for their skills and experience. And that experience built up from one generation to the next. The parents would teach their children to carry on their work, so over time, the village developed many dynasties of specific workers. One family might hold the position of overseer, another might hold the position of chief craftsman, something like that. Basically, we can imagine a tiny village, dominated by artists, and developing over generations. That was the situation for most of the 18th dynasty. From the reign of Amunhotep I, around 1520 BCE, to the reign of Thutmose IV, 1400 BCE, the village was compact, specialised, and isolated. It was a community of artisans living in the hills. In the reign of Amunhotep III, though, things changed. First, there is evidence for a fire, a calamity that may have struck the village and destroyed many houses we have no idea if that fire was an accident, or if it was intentional. What we do know is that during the reign of Amunhotep III, the village goes slightly quiet. It does not disappear, but there is way less information available. Why? Well, I'll get into that later. For now, just know that the late 18th dynasty, from about the time of Amunhotep III, becomes a gap in our knowledge of the village. Then, Horemheb changed the situation. Early in his reign, heb and his government came to Deir el-Medina. Or at least, they came to the city of Waset, or Thebes, the major administrative centre for the whole region. The royal officials made decisions regarding this village, and the tomb builders who lived there. Surprisingly, we actually have some detailed records of what happened. The process began in year seven, around thirteen twenty-five B.C.E. In that year, Horimheb or his representatives came to Deir el Medina and made several decisions about the village and its people. They reorganized some of the farmland and houses, and even some of the tombs. They appointed new workers and promoted others to positions of power this reorganization would be one of the most important events in Deir el-Medina's history. Let's explore it. Our first record is a testimony, a kind of legal document dealing with village affairs. The document itself was written down nearly 200 years after Oramheb's reorganization, but it referenced that event specifically as part of a legal process. In this text. We get our first hint of Horemheb's project. It says quote, Regnal year seven of the king of southern and northern Egypt, Horemheb, life, prosperity, health. The day when the team member, Hai, my father, was allowed to enter into the tomb. The day when Jehuti Mose, the overseer of the estate of the city, distributed the places which are in the estate of the tomb. He distributed them to the work gang of the Pharaoh life, prosperity, health. And he, Jehutimos, assigned the tomb chapel of amun Mose to Hai, my father. Jehoutimos assigned this tomb because my mother, Hener, was the daughter of amun Mose, and he had no male child, so his places had become abandoned. End quote. There was a lot of information there, so let's break it down. In the reign of Horemheb, Year 7, a royal official named Jehuti Mose came to Deir el Medina. He was there on royal business, dealing with farms, houses, and tombs within the area of the village. Jehuti Mose had the power to allocate these resources to families, depending on their claim. In this document, the author describes how Jehuti Mose dealt with a tomb, the tomb of Amun Mose. Amun Mose apparently was deceased, and he had no son or any male descendants. As a result, Amun Mose's tomb was officially classed as abandoned. Fortunately, Amun Mose had a daughter, and she had a husband. So, to keep the tomb within the family, the royal official gave Amun Mose's tomb to that daughter, or rather to her husband, the son in law of Amun Mose. From there, The tomb passed to each generation, until the day when the author wrote this document describing past events. The text is basically a legal memo, explaining why this family owns that tomb and has the right to use it. It's not the most exciting document in history, unless you're really into legal minutiae, but this text is surprisingly valuable. First, it gives a sense of how families arranged their affairs. Apparently, the father-son lineage was supreme in the legal sense. amun did not have a son or male descendant, but the tomb did not automatically pass to his daughter. Instead, it passed through that daughter to her husband. So the son-in-law picked up where the father's inheritance had left off. That may sound a little bit sexist, but it is a reality of ancient Egyptian society. Many of their legal systems and decisions emphasized the father-son relationship above all others. It is what it is, and we must acknowledge it. Secondly, the text gives us an idea of the state of Deir el Medina when Horhemheb took power. The fact that royal officials like Jehutimos were distributing farms, houses, and tombs suggest that things had become a bit haphazard in the community. The village may have been abandoned following that fire a few decades earlier, but now, people were coming back, and they needed some legal housekeeping to set everything straight. jehutimos the overseer of the estate in the city of Waset, was the man in charge of administering those needs. Finally, the date is important. The author of this text was very clear. These events took place in Year 7 of Josè Keperu Ra, Horemheb. So we can pinpoint this business to that reign and that context. And since the author was dealing with a legal situation, we can assume that the date is accurate. Royal officials would have had other records, and they would have been able to check those records. So this document gives a starting point. Horemheb's representatives were reorganising Deir el-Medina, in Year 7 of his reign. That little text about the tomb is our first record of events in Year 7, but there are others. Our second source, and my personal favourite, is a letter. It was written by a man who started working in this area during Horemheb's reign. He was no ordinary man. He was the chief of the Medjai. When Horamheb's officials started reorganizing Deir el Medina, one thing they needed to consider was security. The village, nestled in the hills, was populated by high-value employees. Not to mention, these workers had knowledge and access to royal tombs with all of their treasures and their history. So, Deir el Medina and the whole area around it required the very best in ancient security. As part of the reorganisation, the royal government would need to appoint guardians. The guardians of Deir el-Medina, and the region of Waset more generally, are called Medjai. They are a famous group recorded throughout Egyptian history. The Medjai, or Medjayu in plural, were the police force of Deir el-Medina. They guarded the area, patrolled the roads and hills, and, when necessary, controlled the movement of the locals. The Magi will be a prominent part of the story for dear el Medina, and in the reign of Horemheb, we get to meet one of them personally. His name was Minu Niwi. Minnu Niwi entered Horemheb's service early in the reign. At first, he was simply a Magi, a soldier, bodyguard, patrolman, enforcer. Call him a cop or a private officer. Either way, Minu Niwi was a member of Horemheb's security forces. He served the king directly. That was the start of his career, but over time, he would rise quite high. How do we know this? Well, a few decades after Horemheb's reign, Minnu Niwi wrote a letter, and in this letter, he described his long career starting under Horemheb. That letter survives, written on a piece of pottery. It preserves Menuh-Niwi's tale. The story goes like this quote, The chief of the Magi, niwi salutes his lord, and reminds my lord that I am the aged servant of my lord. I have been a servant since year seven of King Horamheb. I ran before the horses of that pharaoh. I yoked his steeds for him, I made report to the Pharaoh directly. And he inquired of me my name in front of all the courtiers. No problem or dishonesty was found in me. Previously, I had acted as a Magi of the west of Thebes and guarded the walls of Horemheb's great place. Now, I was made the chief of Magi. Menuniwi started his career as a Magi soldier. He served as a bodyguard for King Horemheb and he even managed the horses of the pharaoh's chariot. Perhaps Menuh-Niwi had an affinity or experience with horses. Or perhaps someone tossed him the reins and tackle and said, you deal with it. Either way, menuh letter conveys his pride that he ran alongside the horses of the king, and even prepared them for service. menuh letter gives us the gist, but thanks to the abundant art of this period, we can imagine his job, Soldiers like Menuniwi show up a lot in art of the late 18th dynasty. Specifically, the age of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, and Hormheb is noteworthy for large scenes in which soldiers run alongside the ruler. Magi troops would march or run beside the chariot and the boats of the pharaoh. They guarded the progress, and added a touch of martial pageantry to the proceedings, Images like this survive from various tombs, and you can see some of them on the website. Unfortunately, we don't have pictures of Menunewi himself, but we can imagine his work. Menunewi served Horamheb as a soldier, and eventually he gained the king's attention. At some point, Horamheb summoned Menunewi to the royal court. The young magi appeared before the pharaoh and the grandees, and to his eternal pride, Horamheb spoke directly to Menuniwi. The king asked Menuniwi's name and interrogated him on his work. He questioned his role and inquired of his duties. Kind of like a job interview, but with the most intimidating audience imaginable. Fortunately, Menuniwi answered truthfully, and Horamheb, who probably had the necessary information at hand, announced his decision. Henceforth, Menuniwi would rise to the rank of chief of the Medjay, the Kheri Medjayu. As chief of the Medjay, Menuniwi had authority over a wide area. These troops did not just patrol Dea el-Medina, they also guarded western Thebes generally. The roads leading into the desert, the hills surrounding the Valley of the Kings, the floodplain, and the riverbank. This whole area was a centre for royal development, for business and wealth there were many tombs and temples in the region. To protect those assets, and control them, Medjai patrolled the zone. Menunewi was responsible for that security. It was a significant job, and you can see why Horemheb would appoint that position personally. For Menuh this promotion was probably the greatest moment in his career. When writing the letter, Menunewi described his early years leading up to that promotion, but then he basically skipped everything that had happened since clearly the chief regarded this royal audience and the promotion that followed it as the ultimate mark of credibility for us it gives an insight to the man's life and what he valued as i said this letter was written decades after the promotion but at an advanced age maybe late 60s or early 70s menoniwi remained at his post his tenure as chief of the Magi was long. I guess he did a good job. I like this letter. You can almost hear menuh pride as he lays out his accomplishments. And I appreciate the random details we get about life in Horemheb's Egypt. Dear El Medina is excellent for this sort of material. As we move forward in time, we will have more and more opportunities to tell these small, personal stories. Tales of individuals, of families, of life in the village, and all that came with it. Here, stories like this begin to proliferate. The letter of Minuniwi is not a famous text, but it's a delightful one. I'm glad it survives. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. In Regnal Year 7, Hormheb's regime began to reorganize some of their business. In the west bank of Thebes, Waset, royal officials started the process of recording and administering assets. The work was necessary, the king had big plans in the Valley of the Kings. But the offshoot of this reorganisation was that Hormheb became a prominent figure in the history of the village. The villagers of Dir el-Medina tended to honour their founding fathers. Kings like Amunhotep I, his wife Amoza Nefertari, and Thutmose I, would frequently appear in tombs, stelae, and texts. The villagers honoured those great rulers, and showed them gratitude for creating the village. This makes sense. Many of these artisans and families were employees of the Egyptian government, so the pharaohs, past and present, were technically their patrons the pharaoh's wealth supported the livelihoods of these families. It gave them status, and allowed them to build their legacies. Rulers who contributed to the village in noteworthy terms would enjoy recognition long after their death. Thanks to his reorganisation, Horamheb joined those founding fathers. Decades after his reign, residents of Deir el-Medina honoured Horamheb as a benefactor. For example, An artist named Pai carved a graffito on a cliff that honoured Horemheb. Pai carved his name, along with those of a colleague, next to the cartouches of three kings. Those kings were Horemheb, Ramesses I, and Seti I. Apparently, it was a testimony of Pai's long career, but it also conveys a basic point. Even decades after his reign, and after a new family ruled the country... Horamheb was honoured as the founder in an ongoing legacy. Other monuments convey similar ideas. A scribe named Ramosa, who worked at Deir el-Medina, left several monuments honouring Horamheb. Ramoser commissioned a stela, a statue, and a carved relief, all of which named Horamheb as one of his patrons. Notably, he also put the figure of Horemheb alongside that of Thutmose IV, Apparently, these two rulers were considered equals in greatness for the village of Deir el-Medina. Those are small tidbits. Other sources get even more elaborate. In one tomb, we find images of Horemheb once again. The king stands in the doorway of this tomb, greeting visitors as they enter. Again we find Horemheb juxtaposed with King Tutmos IV. One ruler stands on each side of the door. So Tutmos and Horemheb are equals, honoured by subsequent generations. These memorials show up in various places at various times. The gist is pretty clear. Horemheb's work, reorganising the village, earned him a place in the community memory. Over the coming centuries, residents of Deir el-Medina would remember the king in the list of founding fathers. He was one of the pharaohs who made the village what it was. Not a bad legacy, all things considered. So the story of dear El medina begins in early dynasty 18. But our records of those early days are few. Some archaeological traces, a few rough records. Nothing concrete, nothing we can really sink our teeth into. That begins to change with the reign of Horemheb. In year 7, around 1325, the pharaoh's government started planning new developments in western Thebes. To facilitate that, royal officials reorganised this village. They allocated farmland and even tombs to new families, and the king himself would appoint new overseers for the village. In some cases, families that appear during the reign of Horemheb would become incredibly prominent in this community. We'll meet them in the future. Historically, we are now entering the Golden Age of Deir el-Medina. From the reign of Horemheb onwards, our information will grow, and grow, and grow. We will get more detailed archaeology, larger and more impressive tombs, more records of families, daily life, business, and work. Through the 19th dynasty and beyond, Deir el-Medina will be a major source of information a lot of our knowledge about ancient life will come from this village. It's going to be an exciting phase. Over the coming years, we will visit Dear el-Medina repeatedly to see everything from work and play to scandals and arguments. There will even be court cases and major rifts within the little community. The reign of Horemheb is the start of this golden age. It will only grow from here. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Next time, we remain in the city of Waset, or Thebes. The royal estate manager, Jehuti Mose, had carried out the king's orders and reorganised parts of Deir el-Medina. This happened in regnal year 7. In regnal year 8, Jehuti Mose would return with another royal mission. This time, the estate manager and one of his superiors were tasked with a special job. They would go to the Valley of the Kings, and they would inspect some of the tombs. Burials of previous monarchs were apparently in need of more security. Horemheb's agents would check up on certain monuments. And we have a detailed record of this from one of those tombs. That is episode 168, releasing next week. Dear El Medina enjoyed the patronage of great pharaohs, including Hor M Heb, but the History of Egypt podcast is supported by my patrons on patreon.com. Special thanks must go to the priests, Linda, Terry, TJ, Yola, Mykost, Andy and Chelsea, Jason, Kendra, Evan, Kyla, Nidin, Stephen, and Ashley. Thank you so much, folks. Your support is most generous, and I am eternally in your debt. When I build my tomb chapel in the hills, I will ensure each of you appear in art, adorning the walls. You will enjoy prestige, along with the great founders. If you're enjoying the history of Egypt, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. Or, tell a friend. Word of mouth is a great way to support your favourite podcasts. If someone you know likes Ancient Egypt, consider recommending the History of Egypt podcast. However you decide to support the show by reviewing, recommending, donating, or simply listening, thank you very much for joining me.